other writing of which we have no record now, doctoring other playwrights' plays, uh, putting in uh, a scene here, a speech there. Uh, hey, Will, we're doing this terrible old thing of kids next week. Could you put in some stuff to juice up the betrayal scene? That kind of stuff. That's what a house playwright does. All this work was done in the space of about a quarter of a century, from about 1589, when Shakespeare uh, was in his mid-twenties, to about 1612, as he approached the age of 50. If you have trouble remembering dates, uh, perhaps an easy way to remember it is this. This is four centuries ago. Take the year 1600 as the midpoint. It is the midpoint of Shakespeare's career. It's the date of Hamlet. And he was working 12 years before that and about 12 years after that. Hamlet's the great crossing place. He was a productive man. And he was appreciated in his own time. About the year 1601, a Cambridge scholar named Gabriel Harvey scribbled some notes evaluating current English writing. Among his comments was the following on a certain poet and playwright who had been gaining attention. The younger sort takes much delight in Shakespeare's Venus and Adonis, but his Lucrece and his Hamlet Prince of Denmark have it in them to please the wiser sort. Now, Gabriel Harvey was a vain and waspish man, the sort of nasty, argumentative shrew that gives academics a bad name. In fact, he was so quarrelsome that he couldn't get promotion even in his own university, let alone a decent job outside when he tried to do that. And you can see his condescension toward the younger sort, who like love poems, amorous poetry like Venus and Adonis. But his remark is also uh, reassuring, the remark about Hamlet, a play that we find great now was appreciated in its own time by a demanding critic. In fact, the remark flatters us. Hamlet pleases the wiser sort. Well, I like Hamlet. I must be one of the wiser sort. Shakespeare in his own time pleased tastes less demanding than that of Gabriel Harvey. Some ten years before Harvey jotted down his notes, a much more genial man, a hack writer called Thomas Nash, wrote the earliest surviving description of an audience at a Shakespeare play. Nash describes a direct, open-hearted response that audience gave to plays dramatizing English history. He's speaking in particular about the death of Lord Talbot, one of the generals of the Hundred Years' War against France, and the hero of Shakespeare's play, Henry VI, Part I. This is what Nash writes. What if I prove plays to be no extreme vice, but a rare exercise of virtue. First, for the subject of them, it is for the most part borrowed out of our English chronicles, wherein our forefathers' valiant acts that have lain long buried in rusty brass and worm-eaten books are revived, and they themselves raised from the grave of oblivion and brought to plead their ancient honors in open presence. 
than which what could be a sharper reproof to these degenerate, effeminate days of ours. How it would have joyed brave Talbot, the terror of the French, to think that after he had lain 200 years in his tomb, he should triumph again on the stage and have his bones new embalmed with the tears of 10,000 spectators at least, who in the tragedian that represents his person imagine they behold him fresh bleeding. Now, as the first sentence indicates, Nash has his own axe to grind. He wants to prove that stage plays are a virtue, not a vice. He is an occasional playwright himself, and he's defending the stage against Puritan attack. The extract I have quoted is part of a debate over the morality of the stage that extends from the 1560s, when Shakespeare was a toddler, to uh, 30 years after his death.